This is the podcast that finds the most elusive people, the everyday amazing kind that you know nothing about. I'm hunting these people down and exposing their beauty to the world. I'm Andrew Bracewell, and this is Everyday Amazing. You know, talk about mental programming. You hear people say things like, oh, I don't want to have tenants. And I think, I want to have tenants. They pay off my mortgage. Today's guest is difficult to introduce because there is so much he has done and so many lives he has touched. His accomplishments are too large to list, yet I do want to give the listener some idea of who Ray is in the off chance they haven't yet met or heard of him. Rather than use my own words, here are a few quotes from those he has influenced over his career. Ray is one of the kindest and most thoughtful people I have ever met. He taught me how to believe in myself. He helps everyone. He helped me a lot. Some days I can't stand him, but mostly I admire him and he's helped me so much. If you had to do something difficult, you would want Ray on your team. Ray has spent over 30 years in the real estate industry collecting awards, accomplishing goals, and impacting the lives of those he encountered in a mostly positive way. I say mostly because no human is an angel, and even Ray wouldn't want to be considered one. He has the ability to be polarizing, and he isn't afraid to fight for what he believes in. While his arena has been real estate, His business is people, and during his tenure, so many have benefited and learned from him. That's our goal for today. We want to talk to and learn from Ray Yankenna. I'm going to do my best to ask the right questions and listen closely so we can all benefit the most. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you. Do you like hearing that about yourself? That's mostly true. Mostly. Well, there's a lot of people who think it's a lot true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's accurate. What, what, are the, uh, what are the accurate parts? I, um, I dig in and I fight for things, for sure. I definitely uh, like to help people and uh, like to see them think of themselves differently than they, than, 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 they, than they normally would so that they can accomplish more. Part of that is our culture in our, in our environment. In our office over the years, we've always uh, thought of ourselves as being, we don't have to be the biggest office. We just have to have the, most, the highest producing agents. That'll just attract, you know, uh, achievement type people, people that want to achieve and, and, and just do more than, not necessarily based on a certain number for, that we put on them, but that they accomplish above and beyond what they ever thought they could for themselves. Where does that desire to help others come from? There is a good question. It's, uh, it's deep-seated. I think it's, um, I feel, it comes from me feeling uh, a lot of gratitude the people that there's been a lot of people that helped me and there's a lot of people over the years that helped me to see things uh through different eyes and as a result i was able to you know rise up and do more than i would originally thought i could have done and uh so then i realized well that's easy i mean uh you just have to think differently so maybe if i can help people think differently then they'll accomplish more so let's go back to the beginning you are an immigrant from Guyana. Uh, correct. When did you and your family come? We came in 1967. <laughs> How old are you in 67? 15. 15. So you spent a lot of your childhood in Guyana. Correct. Uh, in Guyana, in England. I, um, I was actually born in Aruba. Okay. 
but at a young age, I had a um, older sister that had leukemia. Uh, parents wanted her, they, she wasn't going to make it. So the parents wanted to go back to where they grew up in Guyana uh, to be close to grandparents and re- family. And so I was two years old, I think, when they took me back. And uh, then I stayed till I was like uh, 11 years old, just before my 12th birthday. Um, my mom decided that I needed to master English. And she packed me up and said, uh, she went with me and took me and dropped me off. My sister and I actually dropped me off in London, England. And put me in a, in a school there so I could master English. Alone with your sister? We stayed in a boarding home, a boarding uh, house. We stayed, with, we stayed with some people that boarded students, that type of thing. And then mom went back to um, Guyana? She had to go back. My dad was there. She had a job, that type of thing. So we stayed there for almost two years. So do you think, do you have a memory or memories from your childhood that have helped shape some of the philosophies that you have today? I do. What are some of those memories? One of my earliest, one of my earliest memories was I started school when I was three years old and I got dropped off at this little private school that was probably, it wasn't near where I lived, but I got dropped off as my mom dropped me off on the way to work, but it was probably maybe three and a half or four blocks away from my grandma's house. I was instructed, you go to school for half a day and you walk over to grandma's and we'll pick you up over there. You know, just think about it. I'm three years old, and I, f- I figured it out. You're walking alone on the street as I'm a I'm walking alone as a three-year-old, and uh, I never had a problem. And what's the, the, the safety for a three-year-old? I mean, it's never safe for a three-year-old to walk alone on the street, but what's it like in Guyana at that time? Well, at that time, and the time of day that I walked, I hardly encountered anybody. And the only thing that I was maybe concerned about, the, the thing that I was concerned about was dogs. You know, like if you heard a dog bark or if you, there was a dog that came at me, I wasn't uh, big. En- yeah, I'm not big enough to handle a, a dog, but I, I always managed to make it. So that memory's done something in your mind for you to speak about that today. It, um, it's an early memory. And uh, a lot of times an early memory uh, helps, you know, helps a person, helps me to form my thinking. How I, what would I do? I, all, every time I made that walk, I always had a plan. I had a rock in my hand or I had something, you know, like, I mean, if, uh, if a dog came, that would be the only danger that I knew of at the time. So back to England, your boarding school you were in, how many years were you there? I, w- I was boarding at a home and I went to day school and I was there for a year and a half. Exactly. You know, t- three, uh, three semesters. What was that like boarding school in England? That's got to be a culture shock. It was a culture shock, um, for sure. In many ways, they, they didn't have good food over there, for sure. <laughs> no spice? They didn't have any... No uh, spice. The English are not known for, for their cook, cooking. English are not known for cooking. And uh, back in those days, they didn't, you know, I'm a kid, so the food at home, the food in the boarding home where my mom's had, my mom knew these people, the food was good there, but, you know, going to school, there was food, there was culture there was like uh i was the only i was the only brown person in the whole school so very quickly somebody decided that they should beat up the brown guy so uh i had to deal with that and did you endure endure that the whole time you were there or uh no not how did once that go? no i i just in the in the early days i had to deal with it but i learned to deal with that back way back in guyana when i was about probably about eight or nine years old my dad took me uh, this was a, this is actually a defining thing for me. So when I was about eight or nine years old, I changed schools, and my dad took me to a neighborhood that he grew up in, 
and took me to this school. And he said, Ray, this school is uh, predominantly um, predominantly Negro students. And you would be just a handful of Indian kids among maybe two or three Chinese kids. There'd be no such thing as a white person in a school in this school. And um, but the the kids are going to want to beat you up. My dad told me. So he says, you know, here's the basic, here's the basic thing you do <laughs> to survive. And so I was having fights with kids uh, within the first week or two of being in that school to the point where I I learned how to bluff them. I learned how to bluff them, and I learned how to take the cane because every time you, every time you get into a conflict in the school, you're going to get caned. But I actually learned that the caning was, um, I used it to my advantage because the other kids hated getting caned. So I avoided many, many, many fights because whenever they want to pick a fight, I'd say, we'll do it after school, right outside in front of the school. Right. Oh no. They said, well, no, no, we do all our fighting in the back. I said, no, no, I, I, I'm not fighting in the back. I'm fighting in front of the school. And so if you fight in front of school, you're for sure going to get caned. So I avoided, I, I mean, I probably only had a couple of fights, maybe three. Sounds to me like you were negotiating. I was, but I didn't, I didn't know it. You know, it was just like, uh, but children, you know, uh, in, in my studies in negotiating, I mean, children are, are natural negotiators. And so I learned right away, I got to leverage this. Um, I got to leverage the rules of the school. And I've got to leverage my language and what I say to people. So what I say to people can, you know, make the fight go away and, uh, you know, make, you can have a lot of fights with words and not end up with having to go to blows. Did you get physical from time to time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to break a few noses. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice way to put it. Well, I mean, if you break somebody's nose and the blood starts coming, that's usually the end of the fight. For kids, for little kids. You know, we were little kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you finish up in England when you're what, 15, 16 years old? No, I was about, um, I was, I, I had my 12th and 13th birthday in England and uh, half by Christmas time in my, it comes on my birthdays in July. So before Christmas, my, I went home and I was thinking it was like a, a holiday trip and I didn't realize the parents actually had a plan, but I didn't know about it. So we never went back. The plan I think was to come to Canada or come to the States. And it didn't work out, so I, en- I ended up doing part of my high school in Guyana uh, from uh, January of the year, I, you know, the next year when I went back, and um, until 67 when I, when I uh, came to Canada. And how does that process go in 67 of coming to Canada? Uh, we arrived in March of 67, so my dad, not, my dad, myself, and my sister came first, my mom stayed to sell the house and wrap up the business and stuff. And my dad had to find a place to live and get a job and all this kind of stuff. And we ended up going to school uh, in one location because we were staying with some friends of my parents uh, for the first few months until we found a place. And then we, when we found a place, then we, it was closer to a different school. And that's when I changed schools. And were you Anglo-Sac? Like, were you in an English-speaking community or a French-speaking community? No, I was, well, the, living in Montreal, it's, you're living in a French-speaking and English speaking city, right? So on the street, you, you're going to hear and speak French. And I learned how to speak some French in England. But when I went to Montreal, it expanded so that I could get by. But I went to an English speaking school. So you finish up and you graduate there. Correct. Correct. Through a series of circumstances, you end up coming from Montreal to BC at roughly, what, 20 years of age, something like that? 
think I was, uh, it was 1973, so I would have been 22 years old. And at what age would you say your working career began as an adult? Would you say that was 20 or 23, 24? When, when, well, do you, when does that click in your brain? Well, I started working. I mean, I had to work when I came here to British Columbia. Uh, obviously, I, had a, I was married. Fancy and I were married in Montreal before we came. And within the first year of us being here, our first child was born, Mike. And uh, so I was working at a job. I worked at a couple different jobs. When I really started to work, was in, I was about 26 years old, about 1977. And I realized I'm not going to make it in uh, working at a job. And so I started with another guy. We started a construction company and I started building, building homes and doing renovations, which I did till about, till the time I got into real estate. And how long would that have been that you were building homes? Well, I was built, I was day to day on the job from 77 till 85 when I got into real estate, but I kept the construction company going till about 1993. You know, I never worked on the job. I just uh, worked, in, you know, every day, but I, I kept the company going and uh, assisted the, the guys that worked for me. I, you know, ran the company and then I shut it down in 93 because by that time my real estate was too busy. We're going to come back to, uh, to uh, I want to get into the real estate career piece in a second, but I want to, I don't want to forget to bring something up that's, that's relevant to the last weekend here. You, uh, you watch the Canadian juniors. Of course. I saw you, you did some, you were doing some posts and, uh, and videos on that. Correct. Uh, you know, when I came, when I came to Canada, it was, if you want to go back, when I first came to Montreal, everybody in Montreal, they're great Montreal Canadians. Come on. When I came to Montreal, <laughs> they all watch hockey. And they were winning at that time. Yeah. Well, they, 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 they've kind of backed off a little just to kind of give the rest of them a chance to catch up. Right. Sure. You know what I'm sure. saying? Um, but yeah, when I first came, I, you know, the people would sit, we had these little black and white television sets and I couldn't figure out what people were doing because I couldn't see the puck. So most people who aren't born in Canada, uh, who, you know, who, who, who are born in Canada don't realize that when people first come to Canada, they can't see the puck. They're just not accustomed. They're just not accustomed. Their eyes aren't trained. And for Canadians, they think, well, what do you mean? I see the puck all the time. Yeah, but you've been doing it since you were born. And, um, so then the, uh, you know, just following the play, uh, I mean, hockey is a lot like soccer, which I grew up playing, uh, it's except it's on ice and, uh, you know, I've become like a lover of the sport. I mean, hockey is like one of the, you know, I'll, I'll go to a hockey game before I go to a lot of other games and the Canada juniors, you know, can, you know, every year that's like a, a tradition. I mean, it's the best hockey, the best hockey you're going to see in the year typically. So when you were watching the gold medal game and Canada's down by a goal in the third period. Well, they were down by two goals. They're down by, that's true. They're down by two goals. What's your confidence level that they're coming back and winning that game? <sighs> I got to confess. <laughs> I got to oh, confess. Here it is. I got to confess. I was, uh, I mean, I expect them to win, but when they were down two goals against the Russians, I'm sure I'm not the only person thinking, oh, shoot, we're screwed. And uh, I said, and then I said, I, the words out of my mouth were screwed unless they do something pretty darn quick. And they did something pretty darn quick. When they, they got missed, a lucky goal. They got, they, well, well uh, it was a bounce. The, 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 um, the, it was a shot from the captain. Yes. Well, it, did it, didn't it go off someone's ankle? I thought it yes. off someone's ankle. It, yeah. it went off a foot. Yeah, it went off a foot. Yeah. It went off, and it, yeah, it went off a foot unintentionally, went in the goal. You can call it a lucky goal. We, well, you need luck. <laughs> and who knows where luck comes from? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We got a goal, and then as soon as we got that goal, I said, okay, we got a chance. 
And then we got another goal. That goal was the go-ahead goal, wasn't it? They were. Oh, that was the tying goal. The tying goal. I'm having trouble remembering the tying goal. Maybe the tying goal was the one from the captain. I can't remember. There was two goals there. I only remember. I remember the captain doing the one goal. I don't remember what the other goal was. And the winning goal. I mean, the winning goal. I'll never forget. I mean, I've watched the replay over and over and over because I wasn't sure how he how he put that puck in. It was a it was a work of art. Thomas, the guy from Toronto. Yep. The guy was. The guy was. Oh, he's the hero. Mm-hmm. Yep. You uh, you did a video the morning of the gold medal game that I watched. You did it. You probably released it on a, on a number of platforms, but I watched it on Instagram. And there's a quote from the video that I've heard you say a number of times, and I want to. I don't want to ask you about it. Something to this effect. And if I misquote you, tell me. Uh, but it's like this: you say there can only be one number one, and then you said and the boys aren't playing for silver today. They're playing for gold. Now that's a statement I've heard. I've known you my entire life. But I've ma- heard you make that statement my entire adult life and certainly my entire career in real estate. When you say there can only be one number one, what does that mean to you? What are you trying to convey? Well, I'm trying to say that th- there's an opportunity to become excellent at whatever it is you want to become excellent at. So not everybody necessarily wants to be, not everybody is interested in being the number one, say, sales producer in the office, or not everybody's interested in being the number one uh, sales producer in town or in, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Not everybody is interested in certain number one positions, but everybody probably has a number one position that they want to attain and be consistent at, at something in their life. And so when you, when you focus on that and you get the number one spot, there is, there is only one number one. So not necessarily the number one spot, but when you focus on that and get what you're trying to attain. Exactly. That's what you're trying to convey. That's right. That makes sense. That's right. Like in other words, in life, whether it's in our relationships or in, in business or in, um, in our health goals, who's working out to be, to be in the second best shape I could be in? Or who's, you know, or who's pounding the payments every day to, to, to produce the second highest amount of sales that I'm capable of? Do you think people are having that conversation in their brain when they go into a challenging experience? Or what do you think is the mental block? What do you encounter in your experience? So the answer, first of all, do I think people have, are, are thinking about this? And I'm thinking not most people. Most people, they've been told they're not going to amount to much. And most people live in a, in a world of... Um, lacking confidence in themselves and their own abilities and in and it's very it's very deep-seated and as a matter of fact i i some i work with people to try and help them get over those mental gaps like identifying the problem is easy you know when i'm having a coaching session with uh with a, with a client like an agent i i ask them only a couple of questions one of them is, one question is i say to them you know what is it that you wanted to do that you didn't get done this last month, this last year, what is it that you want to do in your career that you haven't, you know, that you didn't get done? What, what do you still want to do? And, and that, that could be one thing or it could be seven things. So I get, them to, I get them to write that down. And then I say to them the second question. The second question, I don't expect them, I don't even expect them to write that down right away. I send them away with this question. The second question, I give it to them. I say, 
go back and see if you can figure this out. And which, what I'm asking him to figure out is what got in the way. Like, cause you're, you, you, you are, you put your pants on one leg at a time. You're human, but everything that you're talking about, other people have done. So you could probably do it too. So something must have got in the way. Could you make a list for each of the things you wanted to get done? You didn't get done. What got in your way? And it could be several things. And after that, after we review that information, they now have a pretty clear picture of what's going on, but you should see what they say about what gets in the way. It is unbelievable. Right. So you've done this with literally hundreds of people. Exactly. There's got to be some commonalities that come out of these conversations. So what, what, did the, what happens in these conversations is when I say what gets in the way, it's, it, it bypasses, it seems to bypass the conscious brain, goes right into the emotional brain, and it's like they're not even answering the question of what, because if you saw the answer, you'd go, well, I was trying to accomplish such and such. Well, what got in the way? Well, they start telling you some story about their dog died, or, you know, they'll tell you something, and you think, that's what got in the way of getting that done? It did in a way, because... They were so consumed with all these other things, they never got the job done, whatever it is that they wanted to do. And to try and bring them back from, to bring them back to the right steps that we have to do to, to accomplish any goal, it's, it's not easy. It's easy to identify it. It's, it's, e- it's not that hard to identify it. It's really hard to put the plan in place because now that requires us making some changes to our schedule, to a lot of things. And then to become unconsciously competent in anything, you have to do it over and over and over again. And that's why most people that make New Year's resolutions, or I was making a joke the other day in the gym with one of my videos. I said, look, if you want to, you know, it's busy in the gym. Right now it's busy, you know, because it's January. Sure, everybody's there. Everybody's there. So if you want to get in and use the equipment, go in at five in the morning. But it's okay. By February, we'll be fine. <laughs> no, they'll all quit. And the the we'll, herd will thin uh, out. That's right. The herd will thin. Yeah. So you're, are you 67, 68? I always, I'm 68. I was born in 51. You're born in 51. You're 68 years old. So 68 year old Ray Yankana, I can imagine is far different than let's say 38 year old Ray Yankana. What are, and I don't have a memory of you back then. I mean, I've known you my whole life, but I certainly don't have a memory of you back then. What are some of the obstacles or false beliefs that you've had to overcome in your life? Because I think a lot of people that see you now see you as as this highly accomplished, bigger than life human, but knowing you and your level of authenticity, there's got to be some things that you've had to overcome uh, in order to get where you are today. Well, the first, there's several, of course, of course. Nobody, nobody's born a certain way you develop, right? So, I was concerned about what people thought of me. I mean, matter of fact, I was raised in an environment where it was important to be thinking that we need to do and say things that people, other people will approve of. You need other people's approval. So if you're going to be in sales, if you're going to be in real estate sales, it's realtors are such a small part of the population. I mean, just in British Columbia, we have almost 3 million people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 2.7, you know, yeah, almost, three. almost 3 million yeah. people. So in the whole province, we have maybe 24,000 realtors. Something like that. Yeah. So do the math on that. It, it, so to become a realtor, or for that matter, 
I can change any sales career and, and certainly any licensed sales career, but, but sales in general, if you, if you're trying to make a living, uh, doing commission sales, it's going to be, you're, you're part of the majority. The majority of people are, are exchanging time for money. They're, they're somebody's job. Commission sales, you're a minority. And the things that commission salespeople have to do takes them out of their comfort zone and puts them into situations where for sure people are going to go. I mean, just about everybody I know in, in sales has been told, Ray, why don't you get yourself a real job? Like, seriously, like, why don't you just get off the phone and just go get a job? Trade, be like the rest of us, trade time for money. So, so I want to pick this apart a bit. In sales, you are going to encounter scenarios where people are giving their opinions of you, whether they be good or bad. Correct. And at some point in time early on in your career, you had to overcome some voices in your head that said, Ray, they don't like you. They don't think you're good enough. You're an idiot. Because that, that's is correct. that fair? That's correct. Where did you encounter some of that? Well, one of the very first times, uh, so I'll, I'm going to go right, right back to when I was age 12 and I was living in England and uh, I decided to try out for the cross country team. I was very athletic. I always, I want to do everything, track, anything. Soccer, cricket, I play, I love sports. So I'm trying out for the cross country team and uh, the cross country team, I've never run, it's one thing I haven't done is run distance or run distance uphill. So my cardio is low. I'm, I've accustomed to playing sports like cricket where it's not a lot of running, it's more skill, tennis and those kind of things. So make a long story short, um, I'm doing this cross country run. It's, a tri- it's the first tryout for the school team. There's a hundred of us students in my age category. And if I don't watch what I'm doing, I'm in such rough shape. I'm going to come last. But there was one kid, and I thought I could beat him. I beat him to come to come 99 out of out of <laughs> out of 100. Right? What distance was this? This was about two miles cross country, up and down hills, in a park. And uh, the coach, I said to the coach, is taking everybody's names and keeping track. And I go up to him and I said, uh, "When are you going to pick the team?" Well, he says, we're going to have a few more practices. He says, but probably in a month or so, I'll pick the team for the school. I said, well, how many will you pick to go on the team? And I think it was about 15 of us guys would be on the team. And I said to him, I said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to be on the team. And I was a kid. So I, you know, as an adult, I look back and think he's probably thinking, what a moron. <laughs> like like you, my chances of making that team were slim to none. Well, 99 out of 100. So you're in the 99th percentile. You needed, <laughs> you needed to get to the 15th percentile. Exactly. And, and so it was training for the team or trying to make the team. When you're running cross country and you're running up hills, you hear voices. Now, maybe the voices go away when you are accomplished. I don't know. I always had the voices. I have the voices today. So if I put myself outside of my comfort zone, I start going on a huge hike or, and if I'm by myself, well, then it's just me and the voices. That's why, you know, when you, it's always easier to hike, run, bike with other people. It's always easier. You got the encouragement, but when you just have you and the voices. So I just had me and the voices running and believe it or not, when I got into sales, I recognized it was the same voice. So when I would hear these voices in my head, I went, oh, that's those same freaking demons or whatever you want to call them that used to speak to me when I was running the hills in England. And uh, I can't listen to that nonsense. I just got to break. I just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Especially, you know, in real estate, when you first get started, you got to talk to a lot of people. You got to make a lot of calls. You got to go see a lot of people. That, that's how you get the momentum going. Because basically real estate is 
building yourself a book of business. But the same could be said of insurance sales. You know, my, my friend Carl, he was in insurance sales, and I used to go visit him when I was in construction, and I would watch him make the calls through the phone book. And so I had the idea, okay, we got to make a lot of calls. You start doing that, you're going to hear voices. If you beat the voices, you, you're going to break through. It should be noted, you, spent, you started real estate what year? Well, I started, I started in real estate in 1985, but for the first two years, I was basically running a property management company and, do, company and doing leasing. Right. And so it's, a, it's quite a bit different. And the business was already established, and I was just running it for the owners. So I didn't really get into sales the way we know it in real estate until uh, about 1988. And then you go from 88 to 2000 or late 90s just selling and not owning? Or at what point in time did you transition just out of selling into owning the brokerage you're in? Well, I, I had to buy the brokerage. It was kind of like I had to buy the brokerage because I couldn't negotiate a proper split with the owner. And I had my broker's license by 1991, and I was trying to get the owner to give me a better deal on splits. Uh, we were on 60-40 splits back in the day. And finally, she says, Ray, you just better buy the company. So I bought the company in 1991 and converted it that year to a REMAX office. And uh, so I owned the company, but uh, there was no money in owning the company. The money was in selling real estate. So I owned the company, and I started selling real estate. And by owning the company, my production went down. So I quickly transitioned into getting a partner who would run the office. So I spent a year, my production went down in 1992 from 75 transactions in 91 to 55. That's significant. And, and, and so I realized I, I can't be managing, I can't be running this office. It's going to affect my income. So I sold half the office. So I still owned half, but it was just like a, by owning the office back in those days, I had some control over what was going to happen to my sales career. Yeah, which was the thing of value worth protecting. Exactly. Yeah. Today, it's not, it, it, that's an, a, a non-issue for most people that have a license because we're in a bigger environment and we don't have brokerages that do dumb things like try to take all... It, the, the world's changed. Back in those days, the brokers made all the money and the salespeople had to scrape by and it's turned around. Yeah. So... At what point in your lineage did you go from king on the street, only concerned about selling more homes into some type of, let's say, sagely type figure where you became concerned about others in your industry and helping them? And then I'll use the word mentoring because the latter part of your career, post 2000, let's say, when you moved down into the valley, many people would describe you as somebody who teaches, trains, and mentors and cares about the development of other people's careers. So when, when did that transition happen in your brain? So when I was still in Fort St. John and I recruited agents into the office who had never been in real estate, uh, I was concerned. Like, I mean, I can't recruit somebody into the business and they leave their job and them not be successful here. So I would work with these people one-on-one, -on -one, even though I was selling and I would show, I would hold nothing back and I would show, but it was just a handful of people. But it was enough that when I moved here, I, I had an opportunity to buy the remastered office in uh, the fall of 1999. And I made the deal and I bought in, bought the office. And then the, the owner's son, Don Gertz Jr. joined me as the, as an owner. And uh, right away, I realized, okay, I need to build the office. But the long-term way of building the office is to build the people. So if I, build, if I bring people on board and I build them, 
make them very productive and help the existing people increase their production, they'd probably stay. And for the most part, they do. So it was in that transition that, exactly. you, that, you, that you're, exactly. shift, you're thinking. Well, well in, in 2000, when I moved, I, I, I started to come. I bought the office in January 2000. And I made a commitment to come every month for a week to grow the office in terms of recruiting agents. And uh, I said to my partner, Don Jr., I said, uh, it'll take me three years to double the office. Well, I got lucky, I guess. And we got lucky and we doubled it in about 14 months. So I escalated, I hurried up my moving plans and I moved by 2002. And from that time until today, you've not, I mean, in the earlier years down here, you were still doing a little bit of selling. But for the most part, it's been teaching, training, mentorship. Right. I always, I always do some sales. I did some sales when I first came because the office wasn't big enough to, uh, the office wasn't big enough to support me. So any income that I had to have coming in had to come either from savings or from, uh, from sales. And I always kept making sales. And I just, I just sold my business in Fortune John to one of the agents. So uh, I, had, I had funds coming there. And, but I always did some sales because, I mean, I, I don't want to say I've, well, when it comes to residential sales, I, you know, I did, I was doing over a hundred transactions a year for 15 years. So I could be dropped off in any city and I can, I can go get listings. I can go get, make the business happen. But as time went on, I, I had to curtail any of the residential work and just do commercial deals. And I'm a CCIM. I took those courses before I got here. And so that enables me to do high level commercial sales and make a good income without encroaching on my time. I feel like we, we need to go back and not gloss over a statement you just made there. You said you did over 100 sales a year for 15 years. Is that correct? That was my average. Did you ever get tired? That's why I, that's why I started thinking about leaving the, the town because the last few years I was there, I was like, my last 10 years, my average was over 120 transactions. But if you put the first five years onto it, then it comes down to like 100 transactions. But when you're doing 120 150 transactions a year. I mean, all you do is there, there's not much life in, you know, you're just eat, live, breed real estate, right? The cost is great. Exactly. Yeah. That is, that is something that it sounds sexy or amazing to say that you've done right. this many deals, but can you speak to the cost, whether it be physical, mental, family, like what are some of the things that you, that you gave up in order to do that? Uh, for sure, it would for sure affect you physically. So the exercise regimen that I have today, and it also, I, don't, I didn't have that same exercise regimen back then, but I also philosophically maybe had some, I definitely had wrong information. Back in those days, I thought keeping fit was having good cardio. And so in the early years, you know, I would play racquetball and squash three or four times a week. And I would, you know, stay lean. But then I had an injury. In the early 90s, I, I ruptured my Achilles. And so when I ruptured my Achilles, uh, it was really hard to get my eating back into the way it should be because you just keep on eating. It's a habit. You don't change habits overnight. Yeah, you were, you were burning high calories, so it, you're eating like a horse. Exactly. Yeah. And then now I've got an injury and i got to recuperate. Not to mention your wife is a very good cook. Well, that's actually one of my, yeah, one of my problems. My wife is like an amazing cook, so, uh, and I love everything. <laughs> There's, if she makes a bad dish, I mean, it's just bad in her mind. I, I, have, a, I, just, I have a memory flashback, so the, uh, the listeners can just listen to this for a moment. So I live with Ray for... Uh, maybe a six-month period, something like that, in my college years, trying to make money up north. 
So I got to experience Patsy's cooking. And I mean, I come from a house. My mom was an amazing cook too, but I got to live with Ray, which was different cooking. Patsy cooked different than my mom did. And I can say for six months, I mean, I, I remember going to the table to eat dinner and just walking away in absolute pain because <laughs> of the quality of food. I couldn't, I couldn't stop eating it. So I, I, I sympathize with you. It's not, it's not entirely your fault. It's, it, it's some of the blame lay, is laid upon the person prepping the food. Is that fair? I have used that excuse for years. I, I have used that excuse for years and uh, my inability to push away. Right. My inability to stop or to, you know, and, and, and if I'm out of the house, I eat less than if I'm at home. If I'm at home, I get hungry every hour, every hour I want to eat. Right. Sure. And there's yeah. always something around. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I, sorry, I, I digress there. I, I want to go back. I don't want to interrupt our, our line of thinking. So the cost, what was the, so you said physically, what about mentally? And then what about time cost on your family? Cause I, I think that that is something I'll speak for the masses a little bit here for a second. When we observe these great titans in industries, and you would certainly be categorized as a titan in the industry, the titans often talk about their accomplishments, not in a bad way. They'll reference things they did, right? I did this, I did this, I needed to overcome this. But what's not commonly referenced is the cost to those accomplishments. And I think it's difficult for people to grasp sometimes how to do some of these things because from their perspective, they go, well, I don't know how to do this because I'm putting in my 40, 50, 55 hours a week and I can only do this much. So how is it possible to do this much? Can you just speak to the sacrifices that you made in order to do what you did? Well, for sure. The, the time I would have spent with my, with the family, with the children, the kids. I mean, one of my kids would say things like, well, I could have, I could have been playing hockey if somebody would have got up, got up and driven me to hockey games and I, I back then I was thinking well I thought I was paying for the hockey but well nobody came and cheered me on that you know nobody was in the stands cheering me on and uh and now now that I have grandchildren I mean anytime I get a chance to go to that they're playing I'm there cheering them on because now I realize well, you know maybe Ray, you should have been there cheering the kids on you know they needed that and uh but I was unaware of that because I was uh crushing it right yeah there's a there's a belief system sometimes that people will state when they're, when we're hard at work accomplishing something, it's very easy to turn and look at the family and say, I'm doing this for you. And I would say I used to believe that. And now I believe that for the most part, what I'm doing is for me, I'm doing things because I enjoy it and it gives me life and it's what I want to be doing. And for the most part, my family's along for the ride. And, and then you're walking this fine line of trying to find a balance and not sacrificing too much for, uh, for, for what you're having fun at. Yeah. You've got to put certain things in place. I mean, I didn't sacrifice everything. I mean, I, uh, I used to have certain rules to moderate all the stuff I was doing. So I started early. Like a lot of my appointments were at six in the morning, my first appointments. I'd meet people for breakfast at six and I'd work all the way through the day, but I always had supper at home. So that was one of the things that kind of kept me somewhat of a balance. It was rare. rare. It wouldn't have anything to do with that food that was being cooked, right? It would have a lot to do with the food <laughs> because, um, but it was also, I got to eat and there's no restaurant that's going to make food as good as my wife. So especially in Fort St. John. Well, anywhere. I mean, my grandkids, even today, my, if, you know, for some kids, they go, you want to go out to eat and they, they think it's a treat. You want to go to McDonald's or 
And my grandkids would go, no, no, we, we, if grandma's cooking, we'll go in there. <laughs> that makes sense. So, you know, um, but, but having, you know, keeping that one little thing where you could meet together and have some family time was important. But for a lot of those years, for a lot of those years, uh, it was just Patsy and I, because, you know, keep in mind, I started in real estate in my mid thirties. All my kids were born by the time I was 26. So by the time I'm in my mid thirties, the youngest of the kids are, are like 10 or 11 years old. And the oldest ones are teenagers. And so they're kind of like on the way out the house. And by the time I ramped up the business in the early nineties, the kids weren't, we didn't even have children at home. But like when you came and stayed with us in the nineties. Yeah, that was late. I was late nineties, yeah. 99, 2000 with you and you're, you were empty nest. So the early, the early nineties, the kids were going off to college or work in some place. And uh, so Patsy and I, for those last 10 years, unfortunately, John, about we're pretty much on our own. And, uh, but the, the, the realization came one day when I thought to myself, actually, it's funny how this realization came. I, when you, when you get into your forties, you're going to attend funerals of people that are your, that are your peers. Sure. And when you do, or maybe people, you know, that are maybe 10 years older than you, you attend a funeral and you, it makes you think a little bit. And one of the things I thought about was I'm not from Fort St. John. And am I going to, are they going to bury me here? I remember answering that question saying, no, I, I'm not going to stay here all my life. There's someplace, I've got to go someplace else. And we began thinking, and then through a series of circumstances, we ended up in the lower mainland. So I've written a note for myself here that I wanted to, I don't want to miss this. So I'm going to go to this now. Mentorship, training, coaching. This is a, this is a theme of your life in the last 20 years. Certainly in the time that since you came to the lower mainland, you had to build a business, you bought Little Oak and that's what you've spent the last 20 years of your life on. Who are some of the great mentors and thinkers that have impacted you? So when I was in Fort St. John, um, I met a man. He's one of the first guys I met older than me. And uh, we got to be friends. And uh, he actually was, he's like one of my best friends, but he's a mentor. His name's Ron. And uh, Ron helped me understand a lot of things about uh, life and family and uh, money. So Ron was kind of one of those early, and, and st- you know, he's one of those early mentors and he's still a friend. I still call him a few times a year and talk to him. And uh, I mean, if I get on the phone with Ron, we could be on the phone for, <laughs> we could be on the phone for an hour or two. It would just, time would just pass because there's so much we've done together. And, 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 and with the other thing about Ron was uh, we would um, bounce ideas off of each other. So we would meet almost every week. And if I had an idea, I'd bounce it off him and he'd get, critique what I was saying. One of my other early mentors was, um, you know, there was, a, there was a famous guy, his name is Charlie Tremendous Jones. And Charlie used to make a comment. He said, my mentors are the books that I have. And so when you're living in a remote area like Fort St. John, you're not going to have the opportunity to go to live seminars and meet famous people, but you can buy their books and listen to their tapes. So I had a lot of mentors over the years. I mean, when I found out my real estate board had a library, I, you could ask the girls that used to work, the ones that are still there, they remember that I used to take everything out of that library and listen to it. Everything that from Mike Ferry and Floyd Wickman and on and on and on, all the great sales trainers. but the, the guy that really affected me, my thinking, was Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn really affected my thinking. His, Jim has the most practical, down-to-earth business philosophy way of looking at life. And, the, it, it, you know, you just can't get enough of, of Jim's stuff. And so a lot of it 
I've listened to it so many times it kind of is effect it's kind of molded how I think. And then later on in my in as time went on I met uh I met John Maxwell through his books and his tapes and then I've had the privilege of actually meeting him live and actually going to several of his live events and ended up taking one of uh taking a certification program that he has for to become a certified trainer and coach and speaker. So those those are some of the guys. I, I, I miss guys that I you know that aren't any with us anymore, but I have older material and I listen to it like Zig Ziglar. Sure. Yeah. So what's that you, you mentioned you became a coach, a Maxwell coach. What was that process like? Uh the certification process is um them interviewing you to find out that you're the right person for it. Because they're not just about trying to make everybody into a coach. So them interviewing me and then the certification is like a four day it's a four day program but it has a continuation part to it. So like to maintain your, your standing, you, you go once a year and there's always fresh material and new stuff. And they have them, they have the most incredible for coaches. They have the most incredible website with uh, live with materialists there forever. Like you don't even have to go back to the certification to improve yourself, but you have all the material that you had. I've always had access to. Okay. So back to the little Oak story. Because I want to dive into that a little bit more. Roughly 20 years in the Lower Mainland. Well, you purchased Little Oak, I think, in 2000. Is that correct? Correct. So you've, got, you've seen a lot. The industry has changed a lot. You've encountered hundreds, if not thousands of people. What are some experiences or lessons that stick out to you in that time? Either people you've encountered, hardships you've endured, challenges. What are, what's a nugget or two that you can, um, that you can speak to about that? Well, in our business, change is the key word. And so what we did what we did last year isn't necessarily what we're going to do forever. And so learning how to make, we're basically, some of the things we do in real estate are the same. It's how we do it that changes all the time. So a realtor is always going to have to prospect for buyers and sellers. But how we do it, I mean, in the early days, how you did it was you made sure you went to the office because people would come there. So if you're not in the office and people come, you might, you're going to miss the, the listing offer lead or you're going to miss the up, you know, the, what, because people would phone the office. Or they physically walked into they the store. They phoned and physically walked in. But then when the market shifted, uh, the marketplace shifted and technology shifted. Now, you know, people, people knew they didn't have to come. They could phone and you could get paged and, and so technology just kept changing what we did. I mean, it, it used to be that we used to think, and this isn't, if I say certain things like we, we used to print and send print material out. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that today. But that was the only thing. But yeah, you see, but back in the day, if we were going to reach out, we, we, had, we had print medium. We didn't really have some of the things we have today. So then as time went on, it's newspaper, shipped. classified print. That, exactly. was, that was basic. And then that, signs. It, matter of fact, I like to, some of the ads I used to run, uh, promotional ads, which were branding, brand awareness ads for me as a realtor. Those were all done in the newspaper and on flyers. Today, if I want to do brand awareness ads, I better have it on Facebook and Instagram and, uh, and I better be doing some videos and things like that, which I, we never had that opportunity. So that's one. What about how have you, what, let's talk about generational gaps. So you're a, you're a baby boomer and now you find yourself in a position of, you alluded to technology change, the introduction of video, social media, 
you've got Gen X, not only Gen X, now you have, what do they call the kids these days? Millennials. Not hipsters. I was going to say hipsters, millennials. Millennials. (laughs) Millennials. Yet you, from my observation, I mean, you have absolutely done your level best to adapt and embrace a lot of these different people and different changes. So tell me, tell me a story or two about that. Well, the story is, it, it's always been in my head when I, when I left Guyana to go to England, I had to learn to speak like the English. I can absolutely talk like I was, <laughs> like I was in London. Uh, if, if you drop me off in London tomorrow, I'll still have my, my British accent. It'll be right there. I'll bring it up to the surface. <laughs> You've got to speak the language that people that you're speaking to understand. So when I live in Montreal, I, je parle français. You know, I got to speak some French. Well, generationally, I mean, there are words. I was trying to remember a word my granddaughter made reference to, to some kids. I asked her if she knew those kids and she made a, she said a word. The word we would have used was, we would have said, well, they're a bunch of druggies. She didn't say that. She had a different word and I, and I missed it. So I've got to find out what that word is, you know, because there's new words. The English language, see, one thing about English, English is, is the fastest growing language on, in the planet. There's and fastest new, changing too. And there's new words added all the time. So if you're going to keep up and be able to speak to people at any level, any, you know, and in the real estate world, you can't say, well, I'm only servicing people over 60 or I'm only serving people, you know, you got to be able to help anybody. Uh, and if you are like me and you have a brokerage where we got people that is, we probably have like 19 and we've have had 19 and 20 year old agents join us. And we've got some in their seventies. And so you got to be able to speak to all of them. So you got to keep up with stuff. So that's what you've done. That's what I've done. You've embraced. And, and to your point, you've had to, from an early age, you, I think you were constantly changing. I was constantly aware of the fact that, I mean, I'm a communicator and communication tools are, when, when somebody comes up with a new communication tool, you better quickly, you better d- make a decision to, that if this is going to stay and it's not going to be a fad uh, and a lot of people are going to use it, you better jump on it and learn it. Like, I mean, I started doing Facebook uh, I, I was probably enrolled in Facebook uh, back in 06, 07. But in 09, I realized, oh my goodness, this thing is going to go. I better get all over it and learn everything I possibly can, which is what I did. So let's get a, let's get a little bit more personal. Is it two years ago? How long, how long ago did you have your heart attack? Two years and a few months. It was uh, November of 2017. November of 2017. I remember that. You and I spoke on the phone a day before it happened. And if someone had asked me, was Ray about to have a heart attack? I would have said, hell no, because of the energy and enthusiasm in your voice at the time. Well, actually, when I had, uh, I had a heart attack, when I had the heart attack, I was in the gym. You actually might have, now that I'm thinking about it, didn't you, you had it, and then there was a period of time that went by before you even realized you had it, correct? Well, what, yeah. So what happened was, I was, the acute heart attack. So, uh, the doctors would probably say, Ray, you probably had several heart attacks before in November, because all through that year, I had several times when I would have extreme pain in my chest. And uh, I talked to, you know, I talked myself into thinking it was just muscle. And, um, but in November, I had a heart attack in the gym. And what that meant for me was <clears throat> the end of my workout. It was a hard workout. At the end of the workout, I was tired. I went home, had a shower. I actually canceled an appointment because I thought I'm just too tired and I'll just sit here and rest. And then my daughter came and talked to me and said, 
dad, you don't look, you look like yourself. You look, and I said, well, I'm just tired, but I was actually having a heart attack and make a long story short. When they, when I went in and they checked me out and everything else, um, <clears throat> what, a, what, a, what, a, what they discovered was I had some blockages in my, in my main artery five. So they put in five stints and put me on, you know, on medication and the, uh, the exercise part. I, I always exercise, but I was overweight. I was obese. I was over, I was over 20. I was probably like 30%, 26 to 30% body fat. So for the next, for the next last two years, I've changed up my eating, increased. I've, I've always exercised. I've always exercised, but I have always, but I had a misconception, a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding I had was if you did, you know, if you, if you walked or if you ran or if you did uh, cardio sports, like, certain types of, there's lots of cardio things, right? You're, you're going to stay in shape. And what I didn't understand until recently, only in the last year, even though I've been working in the gym for five years, it's only been the last year that it's dawned, it's clear that I have to build muscle. And, and the secret about the building muscle thing is that the muscle, when you, when you do resistance training with weights, which I did this morning, your body's actually going to be burning fat for maybe 17 hours. Whereas when you do, which is well, all my life, I'm a cardio guy. So the workout serves me well during the workout and maybe for an hour or so afterwards. But as you get older, you lose muscle. And you're and not producing testosterone anymore. So, so what you want to do is you want to, me, for me, what I realized in the last two years, I've got to go into the next decade and next 20, 30 years of my life. I've got to go in there with the most muscle I can possibly take in with me. So you learned this lesson in your early six or early to mid sixties. Uh, yeah, in my mid sixties, I learned this lesson. I should, I sh if if I went back to my thirty year old self, I would have told myself then, hey, squash and racquetball is great, but you should be lifting weights a couple times a week for sure. And then later on, it would have dawned on me I should be lifting weights maybe three, four times a week. So, guy has a heart attack. We won't call it a near death because I don't think you were near death. No, but it's a heart attack all the same. And for the most part, from my observation, you have bounced back physically incredibly well and embraced some new habits and healthy habits and things that you needed to do. What is the, what's the battle in the mind okay. when you have a heart attack? Okay. I already had put into my mind an important thought a long time ago. The thought was, if you have a heart attack and you pay attention to what has happened, you could live a long time so you've got to make some changes you've got to be hard on yourself you got to watch what you eat you got to you you in other words the first heart if you survive the first heart attack and you change your life you live for a long time it's like yeah. a wake it's like a wake-up call and statistically the numbers are actually quite good yeah so it's it's if you you know carry on as if nothing happened living the way you live the second one will probably take you out so that that's what i had in my head so when you're lying in a hospital bed and you're hooked up to an IV, and the doc's telling you you've had a heart attack. Is there ever a moment there where you're questioning yourself, doubting yourself, wondering if you can bounce back? What are the, what, what's the voice in your head in that moment? Well, I'm kind of like in a little bit of shock. But, but for me, I mean, like, I, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, a little, I'm, a little, I'm overweight, but I can still walk 20 miles all in a day if I wanted to. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not useless your heart's a different part of your whole system, right? So 
it makes it definitely makes makes you think. Okay, I've got to make some changes, and I got to do some things to to correct this. And one of the things I did was I went to see a naturopath, and uh, I said to the naturopath, "Would you have thought I was going to have a heart attack?" And he said he he didn't necessarily think that either, but he said, "Let me run some tests." And of course, when he ran tests, he found out that um, I had a lot of heavy metals in me. And so people my age have grown up in a time where we were exposed to a lot of things that we didn't think was problem like a lot of guys that lived on farms painted i used to paint i used to play with lead i used to make things with lead and melt it down and do all kinds of things when i was a kid well lead is bad it was i was full of lead mercury from we, they used to put mercury fillings in our mouths and sure and so i i had the last one removed like you know after the heart attack i had been, i had been removing them because I knew it was, you know, dentist would say, Ray, you should get rid of that. You know, let's change that one out, change this one out. I changed the last one out, and then I took this chelation program. So I've done over 35 treatments, chelation treatments, which they tell me, you know, they, they tell me it's reduced uh, those some of those metals, and there's probably another, there's other opinions to these things. You know, I'm not the medical person, but I, I go for help. So you get to the last few years of your career here. You've built an incredible thing. And then you have this 37, 38 year old guy third, well, 35 when the conversation started, but in the last few years, you've started to release this thing that you've built your baby to me. And today, as we look at each other and we're having this interview, we're partners. That can't be easy. What's that process like having built something with your blood, sweat and tears, and then have a young guy come along and say, Hey, Ray, actually I can, I can, I can, not only can I help you, but I think I've got some ideas that are better. Move over, get out of the way. Let 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 me let me take this. What's that like? Well, it's um, you know, if you at first you know you might think really so then, but if you but as, as I reflect on it, I go, I would rather do this for a longer period of time because I like doing it, and um, but but there's only certain parts of it that I like. See, so with you coming along and you wanting to do some of the things that makes make it so that I don't have to do those things then I can just do the things I like to do in the business, you know, like yeah. work, in, work in the business and do the, the things I like to do and the things that I'm good at. And um, I've always had a partner um, for the most part in real estate. You know, I, I, I didn't have a partner for the first year when I bought the brokerage. Then I had a partner after that. And then when I bought, came to Remaster Local, I had a partner for the first 10 years, nine or 10 years. And then from for the last eight or nine years, I didn't. But I've always been thinking. Matter of fact, I spoke to you when I when I bought out my last partner. You did. I yeah, spoke to you right, two thousand nine. I you, spoke to you right away. And it was it was too early for yeah, me. Yeah. I, I I was at that time I wasn't I wasn't old enough or mature enough. I don't think I'm old enough or mature enough today, but at least I, I hadn't seen enough of life to be able to grasp it in my brain. Right. Right. I get it. So I mean, uh it's better I'm better off working with a with a partner and um Finding a great partner like you is like doesn't come along every day, so I'm uh, I'm working on it. But this is the first time I actually think I have I have visions that you and I will write a book together one day, and that and the title of the book will be I sold my business to a Gen Xer and I bought a business from a baby boomer because this is the first time that you've had a partner who's not your age, correct? And that has that's produced some. I mean, you and I in the last few years, I mean, we have a lot of history and you know good stuff to fall back on but there's some challenging conversations that just come out of the fact that we're 30 we're, we're 30 years apart right but we're here and we're doing it 
I'll, I'm ready for the book whenever you want to do that. <laughs> I want to talk about your grandkids. Yeah. You like to talk about your grandkids. What well, do you enjoy most about your grandkids? Well, when I start talking about my grandkids, my wife usually says, Ray, do you think anybody else cares about what you, you know, like if I start saying something about my granddaughter or my grandson, my wife's like, just to settle me down. Like, I mean, right. Not everybody wants to care. Not everybody cares about your grandkids. Well, today you have the microphone and we have you here to talk. <laughs> so even if nobody cares, we still want you to talk. And I care. I like getting you talking about your grandkids. Well, I can tell you a couple of things. My grandson, he's, he's, he's the firstborn. His name's Saul, and uh, he's, he's absolutely incredible. He's the most caring soul. He cares about everybody. Matter of fact, he cares so much that he doesn't play competitive sports because from a young kid, he was like, he, he didn't necessarily want to take the ball away from the other kids. Or, you know, it's, he thought playing soccer was pass the ball to everybody. Everybody should have a turn, you know? So he's a very caring person, and... Uh, from a, you know, kids develop things early, and one of the things he developed early was he loved to build with Legos. So every Lego thing on the planet, he's built it and tearing it apart. And if I went by his house yesterday, and what he's he's in the garage building something, he's always building. He just loves to build, and so I love to encourage him because I remember I remember the joy of building when I built houses. And the, and the other thing about my grandson that he he leaves me. My sister was if she hears this, she'll uh, she'll laugh because I was never. I was always mean to my sister. <laughs> I was always picking on her and I wasn't, I wasn't a great brother, you know, like, you know, just picking on her, teasing her. My grandson, he is always taking care of his sister. Like, I mean, he's, he, he if there's the last piece of cake, he'll say, he'll, he'll offer it to her. Like he, he's, he's unbelievable. Like, I mean, that's a, that's a very, I'll tell you what, he gets older. This may be not a nice thing to say, not, not, an appropriate place to say, but whoever marries that boy, they're going to have a heck of a, a husband because he's caring and takes care of, he takes care of stuff. My granddaughter, <laughs> she is competitive. All she ever wanted from the time she was younger was a ball, some kind of a ball. And uh, I get a kick out of her because I'll, before games, I'll say, so are you going to kick their butts? And she'll look at me and go, yes, yes, we're going to kick butt. She's a rugby player. She plays rugby. She plays basketball. And uh, she, she did it. They discovered her when she was running track. So she was doing so good running. She's so fast. They, that's how the rugby people saw her. They said, well, somebody that, with that speed should play rugby. Hmm. So she doesn't really have time for track and volleyball. She plays anything. She'll play though, any of those four sports, but she basically plays uh, basketball and rugby and tries to make it all work. And she's, I'll, I'll fumble through this, but she's getting to a point where she's, Talking about playing nationally for Canada, right? In rugby? She's, yeah, she signed papers to play on the, on the, um, on, on the national team uh, and all goes well. She'll probably, she'll probably be, you know, an Olympian uh, if, if she keeps on going the way she's going. And she's like, what, 15, 16 years old she right now? She just turned 15. That's amazing. And most of the, the, the women she's playing with are two, three years older than her right now. Usually she's playing with under 19 girls yeah, when she was 14. Wow. So she's got her grandmother's genes. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely got the grandma's good looks. That's for sure. Okay. That's true. I'll, 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 I'll agree with that. What are some of the things that make you human? What do you love? What are your bad habits? What do you do? What do you do alone when no one's watching? Eat too much. What do you, what do you stick? <laughs> what are you sticking in your mouth? What's your thing? Oh, I, I, you know, it's, believe it or not, because I've been 
doing what I've been doing to change my eating. I, I'm not as I'm not as guilty. I, I'm not as driven to eat sweets as I as I used to. But um, yeah, I I like my desserts. I like over the year. You know, over the years, my weakness is desserts and ice cream and all those kinds of bad things. So if you encounter a French bakery, you're just you're you're in trouble. Well, it, it you know what? I'm okay now, but it wouldn't take long for me to fall off the. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You know, it's like being dry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm I'm okay, but you know I wouldn't want to. I usually walk through chocolate shops, uh, chocolate places. I usually right, go for science. I usually walk through for the smell. <laughs> exactly. The, I figure it's just to see. Well, just to see and to smell it, and then I think, okay, that should do you right. That's that that should be good enough. Keep moving. Wow. Keep moving. Just smell it. Just keep moving. Maybe that's what it was. It was just a smell, you know, because obviously if I stay, I'm going to indulge. Do you have, do you do it in your health plan right now? You know, you're obviously, you know, as disciplined and as restricted as you can be, but do you have a day once every now and then that you let yourself go or what's your, what's your plan? What do you do with that? Because sometimes we need a mental release. You can't just live this restricted life. So I don't have a day, but what happens is it, it usually doesn't happen Monday to Friday, but if on the weekends we happen to go out, I would probably have fries with my, with my meal. Interesting, but that's not a sweet. I know, but, but, I, but, I, but I love fried food. I mean, I grew up eating a certain amount of fried food. I mean, are you telling me that fried food doesn't taste better than, you know, <laughs> than something that was blanched? Well, and, it, it can. Yeah. It doesn't always. It can. it can. Well, you know what? Here's a problem with, this is actually a problem for, not only for me, but for a lot of people. It's like, it's like a mental wiring. We think those fries are going to be great. But after about the second or third or fourth fry, yeah, we're thinking it's not that great. And it's not feeling that good. Like I haven't had Kentucky Fried Chicken in years, but if somebody said, let's go get some Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. Well, that'd be rude. Uh, yeah, that'd be rude. Really rude. So, you know, bad foods, I think, are like part of my, they're part of my bad programming since, uh, you know, and, you know, like you, you asked me what I like. What I like is I, I grew up eating a lot of different Indian foods. And Indian foods always come with roti, which is flour, which is bread. It's, it's a dipping mechanism. Though. Exactly. Let's call it what it is. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we, my, I think my wife purposely doesn't cook roti and curry that often, although she can cook. She's French-Canadian, but she can cook roti and curry with the best Indian women on the planet. And that's because my mom used to come and spend summers with us, and she's... And she my learned. sister, and my sister comes and spends time with us. She's here now. Sure. So she learned how to do it. So I got to be careful. Uh, you know, she's got it. She helps me out that way. She helps me out by not making too many things that are, and she does a lot of stuff where I'm eating a lot of good veggies and stuff like that. That, you know, but, but food's my, yeah, I'm a, I'm a foodie. Well, I, I, there's a lot of people that will listen to this who will agree with the statement because they've experienced it already, but perhaps some people will listen and you'll get called because of it. You are. In my spectrum, you're one of my best lunch partners. Even though you and I actually don't do, you know, we get busy and now we end up not doing lunch very much anymore. It's funny, you know, we used to do it way more. But because you like to eat from all corners of the globe, as do I, and finding people who like to eat that way is not always easy. But every time I go for lunch with you, I feel like we're doing, you know, it's, it's Thai, Malaysian, Japanese, Indian, whatever. It's anything. 
Absolutely. And so for that reason, I always, so whenever I'm feeling, you know, sometimes I'll think, I got to call Ray. And not that your company is not good, but sometimes when I got to call Ray, it's because I just feel like eating something different and not everybody's into eating, eating from all corners of the globe. That's their, that's their problem. That is their problem. Hey, one last thing uh, before, I, before I let you go here. I figured this would be a good question for a guy like you. Retrospect. Through all of your experience, you're now the age you're at with the accomplishments you're at. What's a thing or two that you'd like to be able to tell yourself of 30, 40 years ago? What have you learned that you'd love to be able to relay if you could go back and do it again? Well, obviously, I would have bought more Apple stock. <laughs> uh, you that, know, would have, that would have been good. You know, I mean, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, I would have bought more Microsoft. I would have bought, you know, different, you know. Uh, so, you know, in the real estate world, in the world of real estate, and when you've been in the business for 34 years, you got to realize when I started, the average price was about fifty to 60000 In your market where yeah, you were. Yeah, in the market I was in, fifty to 60000 was the average price. Matter of fact, uh, matter of fact I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm... I think you're high. I'm high. I think it would have been twenty to $30,000. I was, think at was, that time in the lower mainland, yeah, it was probably yeah, fifty yeah, to seventy grand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, I am high. It's, it was more like thirty to 40000 Yeah. So... When you, when you realize that, I did buy real estate every year. I used to buy real estate every year, income producing real estate. But you know what? If I had to do it again, I would have bought less residential, more commercial. I would have bought less single family and more multifamily. Single family is an easier entry point for people, though. It's that, an, it, that's the obstacle, right? It's an easier entry point. But, uh, and, and sometimes you, you, hear, you hear this quite often. Even among realtors, you'll hear people say things like, you know, talk about mental programming. You'll hear people say things like, Oh, I don't want to have tenants. And I think I want to have tenants. They pay off my mortgage. They're the nicest people in the world. I love them. Yeah. So it's, it's programming. So if I, that, from an investment point of view, I would, uh, I would have probably, you know, knowing what you know, when you look backwards, you go, you know what? I should have done this a little bit differently. A little. The good news was I did buy real estate all along and I still own real estate. So that's, it's a hedge against inflation. So the one thing I see realtors not doing so if, you, if I'm giving myself advice back in my 30s, I, I could give the same advice to some of the agents in our office, buy more real estate. Any real estate. When I started my first year, an older realtor said to me, he said, Ray, don't sell everything. And I looked at him and, he, and I got it. I, I got it. He says, Ray, don't sell everything. Buy some of it yourself. And so there, there, if I pass anything on to anybody else, don't sell everything. Buy something. Every few years, buy something. And what about philosophically? What do you wish you could say to yourself 30, 40 years ago? Build muscle. Mm, that's good. Build muscle. I, I did not know for years that the difference between cardio and muscle. I wasn't a fitness guy. I just always exercised and thought I was close enough. But, but health's important. And if your health's important, build muscle. That's good. Well said. And, and, and the other thing about that is uh, you got to get on top of your diet. You know, like you can't just eat anything, anything. You just got to get on top of it and uh, eat the best you can eat. And yes, you can have days off or you can have a week off. Like if you go on holidays, but you see health is like, uh, and anything in life that's good. I I think of it as a big target and you're shooting arrows at the target. If most of the arrows are in the, are in the center of the target, you're going to be good. If you're missing the target altogether, you're going to have troubles. So, or not, or not taking shots. Or not even taking shots. Not even taking shots. 
you got what's that Gretzky's quote? You got zero percent chance of scoring the goals that you never that you never attempt or something like that. You don't shoot the puck, you're, you're you miss all the goals you where you don't shoot. That's right. That's what it was. We're 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 messing it up somehow, but it was something like that. Close enough. Hey, thanks, man. This has been uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I sincerely appreciate your time. Thank you. We'll see you again soon. Take care. When Ray was three years old, he walked home alone on the streets of his town in Guyana, devising a plan should he have to fend off the dogs. A few years later, he had to learn to fight at his boarding school in England because he was the only Indian kid. Ray Yankenna believes deep down that you may have to fight and you'll always need to adapt because that is what he needed to do his entire life. Since the mid-90s, he has been a building block for Remax of Western Canada, and he has helped transform hundreds of lives by teaching people to believe in themselves. Not bad for a skinny Indian kid from Guyana who once got 99th place in a race out of 100. Don't forget to check out our show notes for more information on today's episode and join our mailing list at everydayamazingpodcast.com to get notified of upcoming and newly released episodes. Thanks so much for joining us today.